We are in Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, and we did the first 14 verses um, last week, and so we'll pick up in verse 15 today. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge. But the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads him astray. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway... There is no death. Here, the Proverbs are continuing this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who knows and does the will of God and the one who rejects the will of God. And he begins there in verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Right? One of the marks or evidences that someone is a fool is that they're wise in their own eyes, that they think that they are the fount of all knowledge and understanding, that they have it all figured out, they have wisdom, they have knowledge, right? And in their own mind and in their own eyes, right, that this is what they are convinced of, that their opinion or their view on everything is correct, true, right? And if everyone would listen to them, then everyone would be the wiser. But this is not the case. He's right in his own eyes, right? According to his own estimation, but who made a man the arbitrator of all truth? Right? By what man is it who of himself is able to judge between good and evil, between right and wrong, between truth and error? We cannot do this by our own eyes. And this is why the one who judges things according to his own wisdom is considered a fool. He's right in his own eyes. In contrast to the wise man who listens to counsel. Right? The fool doesn't listen to counsel because he's right on everything. He doesn't need anyone's counsel. Actually, everyone needs his counsel. Everyone needs to listen to him. He needs to talk, and all of us need to listen. But the wise one isn't like this. The wise one is one who listens. He listens instead of speaking all the time. And who does he listen to? Who is his counselor? Well, the Word of God. Right? The Word of God must be our counselor, and those who are speaking the Word of God must be our counselors. These are the ones that we must listen to. Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, 22 to 23, says, concerning the wicked, Professing to be wise, they became fools, 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. There they profess to be wise, but actually they're fools. And in whose eyes are they wise? Their own eyes, right? Their own eyes, they are wise, when in reality, they are actually very foolish. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Again, wise in their own eyes. right? But this wisdom that comes from their own eyes is a substitution of good for evil. Whatever is good, they say, is evil, and whatever is evil, they say, is good. Everything is dark and everything is backwards and upside down. And this is because they're judging things according to their own perceptions. There is a way that seems right to the man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. It seems right to the man because he's judging it according to his own perceptions, his own wisdom. But it ends in death because he's not listening to the wise counsel of God. This in contrast to the wise men of Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. There the wise man is described as the one who builds his house on the rock, and he is the one who hears the words of Christ and who does them, who listens. He listens to the word of Christ. The word of Christ is his chief counselor, and then he obeys the word of Christ. This is the way of the wise man. 16. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. A fool's anger is known at once. Whenever a fool is slighted, whenever he is offended, whenever something happens to him that upsets him, his anger is immediately known. This is because he has no self-control. He cannot control his passions, but as soon as he is offended, he immediately begins to spew forth his venom. He begins to rant and rave and accost other people and do these kinds of things. This because he has no self-control. He's ruled by his passions. And when his passion of anger is aroused, it gives loose to his mouth, his actions in this kind of way. They are the things that rule him. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 speaks of anger being in the heart. Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Right? Anger resides in the bosom, in the heart of a fool. And don't be eager to be angry whenever you are offended, whenever you are slighted. Don't get easily and quickly angered when these things happen. Because the fool's anger is known at once. But a prudent man conceals dishonor. The prudent man conceals his anger or his resentment. He doesn't easily and quickly take offense. He doesn't seek after revenge. Even if someone offends him in what he does, he's not spewing forth immediately on the issue. 
He's going to contemplate, he's going to think, it may be that he doesn't even bring it up, that he just is willing to take the offense, or he's going to do it in a much more composed, in a much more proper way than doing it rashly in the spur of the moment when his passions are aroused, right? We need to have a soft answer in order to turn away wrath. But if we're in the moment, in the heat of the moment, then what are we going to do? Well, we're going to say things that we shouldn't say. And it's not going to help the issues, but it's going to make it worse. It's going to exasperate those types of things. The prudent man, he conceals dishonor. There are even times when there is offense and we don't even need to bring it up. We just need to to let it go and not make a big deal over every little thing that happens. Luke chapter 7 Here, I think we have an example of this. Though Jesus does bring it up, the reason he brings it up is in contrast to what is happening, right? In order to defend this innocent woman. But up to this point, though Jesus had been offended many times, Jesus didn't bring it up. He was silent about it. He didn't make a big deal of it until it was necessary in order to defend this woman. Luke 7, 44. This is when Simon the Pharisee is criticizing Jesus because this sinful woman, is, uh, she is washing the feet of Christ with her hair and with her tears. And Simon is the one in his heart who says, if he knew what kind of woman she was, if he was a prophet, and he would know what kind of woman she is and that she's a sinner and he wouldn't let her touch him in this way. But then in Luke 7, Jesus says, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Right? In these three instances, Simon was receiving Jesus into his house in common courtesy, right? Common decorum and hospitality. He should have had water for him to wash his feet. He should have given him a proper greeting. He should have anointed him with oil in this way in order to show affection, friendship, right? You're having me into your house, but you didn't do any of these things for me. Now, are these offenses that he's committing against Christ? And up to this point... Did Jesus make a big deal out of this? He didn't say anything about it until it was necessary in order to defend this woman and to show the contrast between Simon and this woman. So though Simon had done these things, Jesus didn't get in a huff and a puff and walk out and storm away mad and say, I'm not going to have dinner with you because you've offended me. He went ahead. He just let it go. He let the offense lie until it was necessary to bring it up. And this is because he's a prudent man. He is the prudent man. He concealed the dishonor and he didn't blow it out of proportion and make it into a big deal until it was necessary in order to defend this woman. Verse 17. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. Here, truth and righteousness go together. If you speak truth, you tell what is right or what is in accordance with righteousness. So truth-seeking, truth-speaking, and righteousness, whether that be in the home, in society, in the court of law, wherever it is, in order for there to be righteousness in the land, 
in our own life, it has to be in accordance with the truth. Because how can righteousness come out of lies? It's impossible. Truth and righteousness always go hand in hand. So those who speak truth, they say what is right. But a false witness brings about deceit. Deceit and unrighteousness or injustice, these things go together. Because when there are lies, we cannot get to an understanding of the truth, of what is right, of what needs to be done. So those who are false witnesses, they bring about deceit, and there is no righteousness. Justice is subverted whenever there are lies instead of truth. Truth and righteousness go together. Lies and injustice go together. Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, uh, verses 35 and 36. Thirty-five says, To deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit, of these things the Lord does not approve. Defrauding a man in his lawsuit, depriving a man of justice. Does God approve of these things? No, of course not. And this defrauding comes about through lies and deception, right? Through deceit. Verse 18 There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healings. Here, the words of the man are described as a sword. And the one who speaks rashly, who does not carefully think about what he's saying, and if it is necessary, or if this is the time for this to be done, when he speaks, he's like one who is thrusting his sword. His words have become a weapon that he's using to destroy a person. And when he's speaking rashly, he's thrusting it over and over and over again into the life of another, ruining his good name, his good reputation, ruining the very person, destroying him in this way. The Bible uses, in many places, words in a sword as a metaphor or an illustration to describe the words of a man. Psalm 55. Psalm 55 verse 21, that when people are pursuing evil, their words are like swords to do evil, to do harm. Psalm 55, 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. There this friend, this one who was pretending to be a friend, he had smooth speech, but actually his words were a drawn sword, drawn to come and to put him to death, to hurt him and to harm him. Then also Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Here again, these are wicked men, and they're using their tongue, their words, to destroy the righteous man. This in contrast with the Word of God. The Word of God is also called a sharp, two-edged sword. 
But the word of God brings healing to us. It brings healing to us. Certainly it brings destruction upon the wicked, but not to the righteous. To the righteous, to the one who is repentant, it brings healing and it is a benefit to us, which is what is described in verse 18. The contrast to the wicked, whose words are like a sword, the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of a wise person, instead of destroying and destruction, it brings healing, it brings peace, right? It brings reconciliation. It keeps people from committing sins against God. An example of this would be 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 to 25, this was the case with Abigail, Nabal's wife. She used her words to bring peace, to bring peace and to bring healing instead of bringing destruction. Nabal's words were like swords that brought destruction. Abigail's words were like those that brought healing and peace. 1 Samuel 25, 23 to 25. It says, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Then also 32, 32 to 35. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you. Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. So there, Abigail's words, not only did they preserve the life of the household, because David says he was going to kill every male in the household of Nabal. Innocent lives would have been killed, and they were saved by her words. But also, she kept David from sinning, right? Though David did sin in his heart in that he already had determined to do it, it restrained him from carrying out what was in his heart, and he would have shed innocent blood. So her words were used to restrain David's sin and also to preserve the innocent lives of those in the household. And he says, go up in peace. So her words brought peace to the household instead of there being destruction. There's healing there. Verse 19, truthful lips will be established forever. But a lying tongue is only for a moment. Truthful lips will be established forever. Whenever the truth is in our lips and on our mouth, it shows that the truth of God is in our hearts because it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. When the word of God is in our heart, it will come out of our mouth. And this is why truthful lips are established forever, because the word of God, will it ever pass away? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, the word of Christ. If the word of Christ is in our hearts, 
then we will never pass away. We will be established forever as well. And that's what he means here. When the truth is in our lips, it is evidence that we are children of God, that we have been reconciled to God. This is one of the manifestations, one of the fruits of the Spirit produced in the children of God, is that instead of speaking lies, they now speak what is true, what is right. There are truthful lips within them instead of lying lips, and they will be established forever in that they will go to heaven for all eternity and they will not enter into the second death but the lying tongue is only for a moment right liars have their portion where they have it in the lake of fire according to revelation 21 verse 8 so the lying tongue he's only going to be for a moment he'll be on this earth for a moment strutting about spewing out his lies but eventually what's going to happen to that wicked man whose lying tongue manifests that he is of his father, the devil, who has been a liar from the beginning. Well, he will be destroyed with the devil in the lake of fire for all eternity. He is only for a moment, and then he passes away, and he enters into judgment and condemnation. 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. Sin and deceit, these go together, right? Whenever there is deceit, then it always produces evil. It always produces evil. Those who are devising evil schemes, they bring their evil about through lies and deceits. This is how Satan did in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. He had an evil scheme. The evil scheme was for them to uh, partake of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he brought this evil scheme about through his deceptions, through his lies, through his deceit. And this is the way it has been from Genesis 3, and it remains this way until our very present day as well. Whenever there are evil schemes, those evil schemes are brought about through lies and deceit. But counselors of peace have joy. Counselors of peace, instead of pursuing evil schemes, those who pursue peace, those who promote peace, are the ones who are counselors of peace. And the counsel they give is the word of God, which teaches us how to have peace between God and man through the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And is it not the peacemakers that we want to be? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Counselors of peace are the sons of God, and they are the ones who have peace with God and who teach other men how they can have peace with God and who also want to live at peace with all men. This is the way that we should be. We should seek and pursue peace with all. 21, no harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. No harm befalls the righteous. Now, he cannot mean that the righteous never face any days of evil, that they never face hardships and sufferings. He cannot mean that they're never harmed by the evil schemes of wicked men. Otherwise, the Bible would not be true, right? Because there are many examples in the Bible of righteous men who underwent many harsh 
circumstances, many difficulties, even some who were harmed, even some who had their life taken away by the hands of wicked men. So how does he mean it then? No harm in what way? He means it in the ultimate sense. No eternal harm, no eternal ruin and destruction can ever befall the righteous. And this is because they are upheld by the mighty power of God. Sin and judgment will not overcome and will not conquer the righteous. They will overcome all sin and judgment because they've been reconciled to God. What can separate them from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No harm can befall us. Even though, he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. That they are being put to death all day long. They are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet none of these things will be able to ultimately harm them because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And God will deliver us from every evil thing. This is the righteous, but not the wicked. The wicked are filled with trouble. They're filled with trouble because God is not for them. God is not with them. God does not love them. Therefore, they will have trouble. They have trouble in this life because of the judgments of God that come upon them because of their sin. And then ultimately they will have trouble in the life to come when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they are cast into the lake of fire because of their sins. They will have eternal trouble, eternal misery, eternal torment in the lake of fire. 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. God hates lies. He hates liars. He hates deceit. All of these things are contrary to his character and nature. These are abominations to God, lying lips. So we should hate lies and want nothing to do with lies and deceit, especially when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the teaching that's coming from the word of God. We should not want anything to do with lies and deceit. Revelation 21, 21, 27. Speaking of the new heavens and new earth, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the lying lips 
that are an abomination to God, they will not enter into the new heavens and new earth. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. The faithful, the righteous, right? Those who have faith in Christ, they are the delight of God. They are the apple of his eye. They are his chosen possession. He delights in his children, in his people, right? In those who have been purchased and bought by the blood of Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please him because those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists. It says also in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a a rewarder of those who seek him. Right? You cannot please God without faith. But if we do have faith, is that pleasing to God? Yes. He delights in that person. Well, that's what he says here. The faithful are his delight. These are the ones he rejoices in. 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaim folly. The prudent man conceals knowledge. Meaning that he is a thoughtful man and he understands situations, he understands circumstances, he understands that even if he has knowledge of something, that it may not be the proper time to reveal that knowledge. That there is a time to keep silent on certain things. And because he's prudent, he's discerning and wise, he knows when to speak and when to keep his mouth shut. He knows when to give forth his knowledge and when to conceal his knowledge. So he knows when to do that, when to speak and when to be silent. And here again, we're not talking about concealing lies. It's knowledge that he has, true knowledge. And yet he knows that there are certain times when it is better to keep silent and to wait and to look for a more opportune time in order to reveal this knowledge. But the foolish man, he proclaims his folly. His heart, he can't keep his mouth shut. Even though he has foolishness in his heart, he just has to speak up. He has to speak out. He has to let his mind be known at all times. And when he opens his mouth, he proclaims his folly to everyone. And this is the way of the fool. He doesn't have control of his lips. Again, the same as it was with anger. The righteous man has self-control. He has control over his anger in his heart, but he also has control over his mouth. And he knows how to control it and keep it quiet so that he does not give free reign to his lips. The foolish man cannot control his anger, and he also cannot control his mouth. He just says whatever comes to his mind all the time. And this is how many people behave and how they are. And it's not a good characteristic. It's not a virtue to just speak your mind all the time. Even if you're right on something, there's times when it's better to be quiet, to be silent, and to not speak. And if you're in doubt, just be quiet. (laughs) That's typically the best option for us to choose. 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. The hand of the diligent will rule. The one who is hardworking, right, who is diligent, who is studious in his labors and, and efficient in what he does. Isn't this generally the case? If you are a hard worker in the workplace, whether that be 
at McDonald's, whether that be at Walmart, whether that be at some other company, uh, uh, some high company, uh, big company where a person works. Not that McDonald's and Walmarts aren't big companies, but typically those are entry-level positions that a person has. Or if it's a more skilled position that one has, if you are a diligent hard worker, don't we typically progress within our company? We get promotions, we move up, we get more responsibilities so that we begin to rule over others, right? Meaning we have responsibility over them. They have to answer to us and we are managing them. And the more diligent we are, the more responsibilities we get. This is the way that it typically works, though not universally. There are some who are hard workers who always remain at an entry-level position. But there are others through hard work who rise up in the company. And typically, unless it's a very corrupt company and the people are buffoons, if a person is lazy, they're never going to advance in the company. They typically stay at the very bottom or they get fired because no one wants them there because they're not diligent and they are not hard working. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. 10.4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And then also Proverbs 22.29. 22.29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. The skilled man in his work, the one who is diligent, who works hard, who advances and progresses, he will stand before kings. The king will want him in his service because he's so good at what he does. Isn't this what happened to Joseph? Joseph, wherever he was found, whether it be in Potiphar's house, whether it be in the prison, he was a very diligent man, so diligent that whoever was his superior could put him over everyone else and they didn't even have to worry about anything. And ultimately, where did Joseph advance to? Second in command only to the Pharaoh. Now, of course, that was by the will of God, but also it was by his diligence. It's both. It's both the will of God, but also the necessity of us being faithful to do what God has called us to do. And his diligence commended him to Pharaoh so that he was entrusted with this great responsibility. This in contrast to the slack hand who is put to forced labor. The slack hand, the one who doesn't work, is going to be forced to work, forced labor. He can't pay his debts. He can't pay his responsibilities. Therefore, he is forced to go and work for another. Because he won't work on his own, he is forced to work. This is the way it is for many people. right? We should be willing and able to work diligently when, as doing it to the Lord without having to have someone breathing down our neck. Now, again, many times, for some, it is beneficial for them to have a superior, and God does it like that on purpose, to train us and to teach us so that we will be diligent. And it is good that we're diligent because we want to please our superior, but also we should be diligent because we want to please our God. And those who will not please their superior, ultimately, they will be put to forced labor. 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety in the man's heart weighs it down. Now, this anxiety can be legitimate or it can be illegitimate, right? Legitimate meaning there, there are real troubles that happen to us in this world, right? When someone that we love dies, that weighs our heart down, 
right? And that's not illegitimate for the heart to be weighed down and for the heart to be sad whenever something dramatic or, or catastrophic happens to us. Whether it be the death of someone, whether it be some very difficult situation, a trial, a, a, a turmoil that we're going through, such as what happened to Job. Was it wrong for Job to be weighed down, to be sad, to be disheartened because of all the troubles that he had gone through? Of course not. That is what it is to be a man, to be a human, right? It's, it's impossible for him to just go around smiling, skipping around the town, saying, oh, it's such a wonderful day, when he just found out that all of his children had died and all of his household had been plundered. These are very difficult things, and these things weighed him down. Now, there are other times when we are weighed down illegitimately, right? When it is the anxiety coming about because of our own sin and our lack of faith and trust in God. So whether it is some legitimate reason or whether it is illegitimate, whatever it is, anxiety weighs the heart down so that we cannot take any comfort, any pleasure, any joy in anything in this life. It's hard to eat. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to be with others. There's no, you, you can't smile. You can't laugh. You can't enjoy anything because your heart is so weighed down with this trouble, right? With this, this anxiety that has come upon you. This in contrast to the good word. The good word makes it glad. Whenever someone gives you good news, something good, something that is beneficial, something that is delightful, then your heart is made glad. Instead of it being weighed down, it's set free from that, and it is now it is made, made glad. And this happens as well whenever we get good news. Or maybe we had the bad news and we're weighed down. Maybe the doctor gives us an initial report, and the initial report is that we have some severe illness and we're weighed down. And then after further tests and consultation, the doctor comes back and gives us good news and says that what we thought wasn't true and actually everything is fine and you're doing good. Then we're going to be glad and we're not going to be weighed down anymore. This is the way it is in this life. When there are troubles and hardships, our heart is weighed down. And we have to deal with that and overcome it. And then whenever we get a good word, then our heart is made glad. And we should rejoice in that and thank and praise God. Now, ultimately... I think this has to do with sin and forgiveness. Because what weighs down the heart more than our sins? Right? What brings more anxiety upon a man than the knowledge of his sin and that he's under the wrath and judgment of God? Right? This happens when we become aware of our own sinfulness. The heart is weighed down in this way, and then a glad word causes us to rejoice. And what is the good word? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The knowledge the truth that we can have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ by faith in Him. And then when a person understands that and sees the blood of Christ applied to them, that they're set free from their sin, then they have gladness in their heart. Then they are rejoicing because of the forgiveness of sins. And this is one of the uh, ministries that Christ performs for us. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4. says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Here, this passage is speaking of Christ. 
And one of the things that Christ has is the tongue of a disciple. He has a tongue filled with the word of God, and he's able to use his tongue to sustain the weary one. He sustains us by his word. While we read the word of Christ, does it not cause our hearts to burn within us? That's what this disciple said in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Their hearts burned within them as he spoke with them on the way. He knows how to sustain the weary with his word. And that is why whenever we are weighed down with anxiety, where do we need to go? We need to go to the word of God because that is where we will find comfort and help in our time of need. 26, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The righteous one is a guide to his neighbor, meaning because he's righteous, he knows the way of righteousness, he knows the word of God, because how can he be righteous apart from the righteousness of Christ? And how can he come to know that apart from the word of God? Right. All of this entails that he's righteous means he knows the word of Christ and he has faith in the word of God. He is acquainted with these things. Well, he knows the way of righteousness. He knows the way of salvation. Isn't he going to be able to guide his neighbor as well? If he has come to know these things, he's also going to be able to guide his neighbor, to teach his neighbor the will of God, the ways of God, how to be reconciled to God, how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So he's able to guide his neighbor in truth and righteousness. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right, That is what is guiding the righteous man. And now he's also able to guide his neighbor in the same path. But the wicked, his way leads them astray. A wicked man, he will lead them astray because he's not set upon the word of God. His mind, his heart is not fixed on the word of God. He's not living according to the word of God. He's telling his neighbor to follow him, to listen to him. But because he's not being guided by God's word and the truth, he's always going to lead them astray. Verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligent. Here, could you imagine being so lazy that you're unwilling to roast your prey? Unwilling to even cook your meat because you're so lazy that you're eating raw meat like a wild animal. Because you can't even have the strength, right, the diligence to make a fire and go through the process of even roasting your prey. And yet this is what a lazy person is like. Even those things, the most simple, necessary aspects of life, he is unwilling to do these things because it takes effort. He's unwilling to exert the effort to even roast his prey. Well, he won't even roast his prey. What else is he not going to do? Is he going to get up and go to work every day? Is he going to go out and do manual labor under the sun? Is he going to tend to his house and the things that need to be done? He's not going to do any of those things, right? If he can't even roast his prey, he's not going to do anything. This is how lazy he is. But the precious possession of a man is diligence. The righteous man, his prey is not his greatest possession, but it is his diligence that is a great possession for him because it is through his diligence that he is able to provide for himself, provide for his family, provide for many others as well. Through his diligence, he's able to go get prey 
And through his diligence, he's able to roast his prey so that it's beneficial to his family. That way they all don't get diseases and die from eating rotten, spoiled meat. This is the way it will be with the diligent man. And it is precious for him because his diligence proves that he is a man of God, that he is a man of faith who is a child of God. Then verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. In the way of righteousness is life, right? The pathway of life, of eternal life, is the pathway of righteousness. And many times when we think about the gospel, people are thinking about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and all those things are true. But many times they're not thinking about the righteousness of God. But the gospel is all about the righteousness of God. The gospel is essentially teaching us how unrighteous men can become righteous in the sight of God. And this is why the pathway of life is the pathway of righteousness. The gospel is about the righteousness of Christ, how we can be made righteous in the sight of God. It says in Romans 1, 16 to 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Right? That we can become righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, isn't that the path of life? Believing in Christ? So the way of righteousness leads to life. The righteousness of Christ. Its pathway, there is no death. There is no death. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. The way, the truth, and the life. This pathway of righteousness always results in life, and there is no death there with Christ. As it says in Revelation 2, 11, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. When we are reconciled to God through the death of Christ, when his righteousness is accounted to us, we are in the pathway of life and we will not be hurt by the second death. There will be no death. Now, again, there may be temporary death in our body, but our souls will go to be with the Lord. And then ultimately our bodies will be resurrected and we will have eternal life in both body and soul for all eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the pathway that we should desire to be upon, the pathway of righteousness. And that is the path that we will walk in as well. If we are made righteous by Christ, then that righteousness will manifest itself daily in the way that we live. And may that be true of us this week as we go from here. May we walk in the pathway of Christ, right? Knowing that we have been reconciled through the death of his son and then desiring to live a godly life for his glory, not for our own. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, knowing, just as we read, Lord, that the way of the righteous is the way of life, and that there is no death, Lord, in this pathway. Lord, that is the way that we want to walk upon. Lord, we want to be on that highway of holiness. Lord, the highway Lord, of the life of Christ. Lord, we, we pray that, Lord, we would have true faith, 
in Jesus Christ. Lord, knowing that there is no forgiveness of sins. Lord, there is no way that we can be made right in your sight apart from him. Lord, that on our own, we are all miserable wretches. We are unrighteous. Lord, we are deserving of your wrath and your judgment. And it is only through his death that we can be made right in your sight. But Lord, as well, that those who have been reconciled, Lord, that this righteousness applied to us, that it will manifest itself in the way that we live. So, Father, we pray that this week as we go from here, Lord, that we would commit our way to you, Lord, that you would establish us and sustain us. Lord, help us to walk in your ways and to do those things that are pleasing to you. Father, we pray that you give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, that you would bless us the remainder of this Lord's Day. And Lord, as well, that you might bring us back together on Wednesday so that we can be together again and study your word. Lord, continue to build us up. And Lord, be with us and bless us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.